Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. You're listening to Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio with your reader Anna Mercer. Our book is Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. Chapter 20, The Black Island. At dawn, Shrike comes to the edge of the sea. The tide is turning and the deep wheel marks that lead down into the surf are already starting to blur. Eastward, smoke rises from settlements on the shores of the Black Island. The stalker wrenches his dead face into a smile, feeling very pleased with Hester Shaw and the trail of destruction that she has left behind her. The thought of Hester is all that dragged him through the marshes. On and on it has drawn him, through mud that sucked at his damaged legs and sloughs whose bitter waters sometimes closed over his head. But at least the tracks the suburb left were easy to follow. He follows them again now, stalking down the beach and into the waves like a swimmer bent on a morning dip. Salt water slaps at the lenses of his eyes and seeps, stinging through the gashes in his armour. The sounds of the gulls and the wind fade, replaced by the dim hiss of the underneath of the sea. Air or water, it makes no difference to the resurrected men. Fish goggle at him and dart away into forests of kelp. Crabs sidle out of his path, rearing up and waving their pincers at him as if they are worshipping a crab god, armoured, invincible. He ploughs on, following the water scent of oil and axle grease that will lead him to Tunbridge Wheels. A few miles from the inlet where they had come ashore, Chrysler Peavy paused at the top of a steep rise and waited for the others to catch up. They came slowly, first Tom and Hester, then Ames with his map, finally Mags and Mungo bent under the weight of their guns. Looking back, they could see the steep rocky flanks of the island falling to the sea, and a cluster of boats gathered above the wreck of Tunbridge Wheels, where a raft with a crane on it had already been anchored. The islanders were wasting no time in looting the drowned suburb. Mossy scum, growled Peavy. Tom had barely spoken to the mare since they first came struggling ashore. Now he was surprised to see tears gleaming in the little man's eyes. He said, I'm so sorry about your family, Mr Peavy. I tried to reach them, but... Little twerps, snorted Peavy. I wasn't sniffling over them. It's my lovely suburb. Look at it. Damn mossies. Just then, from somewhere to the south, they heard the faint clatter of gunfire. Peavy's face brightened. He turned to the others. Hear that? Some of the lads must have got ashore. There'll be more than a match for them mossies. We'll link up with them. We'll capture Airhaven yet. Keep a few of its people alive to repair it. Kill the rest and fly back to the mainland. Rich. Drop out of the sky on a few fat towns before word gets round that Airhaven's gone pirate. Catch ourselves a city, maybe. He set off again, hauling himself up from boulder to boulder with the monkey riding on his hunched shoulders. The others followed behind. Mags and Mungo seemed dazed by the loss of Tunbridge wheels and not convinced by Peavy's latest plan. 
They kept exchanging glances and muttering together when their mare was out of earshot. But they were in strange country, and Tom didn't think they had the nerve to move against Peavy. Not yet. As for Mr Ames, he had never set foot on the bare earth before. It's horrible, he grumbled. So difficult to walk on. All this grass. There may be wild animals or snakes. I can quite see why our ancestors decided to stop living on the ground. Tom knew exactly how he felt. To north and south of them, the steep side of the Black Island stretched away, and above them, the slope climbed almost vertically to dark crags, which moaned with ghostly voices as the wind blew around them. Some of the higher pinnacles of rock had been sculpted into such wild shapes that from the beach they had looked like fortresses, and Peavy had led his party on a long detour to avoid them, before he realised they were only stones. "'It's lovely,' sighed Hester, limping along at Tom's side." She was smiling to herself, which she had never seen her do, and whistling a little tune through her teeth. "'What are you so happy about?' he asked. "'We're going to Airhaven, aren't we?' she replied in a whisper. "'It's laired up ahead somewhere, and Peavy's little gang will never take it, not with Mossies and the Airhaven people ranged against them. They'll be killed, and we'll find a ship to take us north to London. Anna Fang's there, remember? She might help us again.' "'Oh, her!' said Tom angrily. Didn't you hear what Peavy said? She's a league spy. I thought so, admitted Hester. I mean, all those questions she kept asking us about London and Valentine. You should have told me, he protested. I might have revealed an important secret. Why would I care? asked Hester. And since when have apprentice historians known any important secrets? Anyway, I thought you realised she was a spy. She didn't look like one. Well, spies don't generally. You can't expect them to wear a big sandwich board with spy on it or a special spying hat. She was in a strange, jokey mood and Tom wondered if it was because these dismal steeps reminded her of her girlhood on that other island. Suddenly she touched his arm and said, Poor Tom, you're learning what Valentine taught me all those years ago. You can't trust anybody. (laughs) said Tom. Oh, I don't mean you, she added hurriedly. I think I trust you, almost. And what you did for me back in Tunbridge Wheels, making Peavy let me out of the lockups like that. A lot of people wouldn't have bothered, not for somebody like me. Tom looked round at her and saw more clearly than ever the kind, shy Hester peeping from behind the grim mask. He smiled at her with such warmth that she blushed. At least her strange face turned red in patches and her scar went purple. And Peavy looked back at them and hollered, Come on, you two lovebirds! Stop whispering sweet nothings and march! Afternoon, the cloud clearing eastwards and sunlight dazzling down through the wave tops, flickering on the upper works of Tenbridge wheels. Shrike moves through the suburb's streets with his head swinging slowly from side to side. Bodies drift in the flooded rooms like cold tea bags left too long in the pot. Small fish dart in and out of a pirate's mouth. A girl's hair coils on the current. Dark keels of salvage boats move overhead. He waits hidden in the, in the shadows, while three naked boys come diving down, flying past him with urgent motions of their arms and legs and leaving trails of silver bubbles. They kick back to the surface carrying guns, bottles, a leather belt. Hester is not here. Shrike turns away from the sunken suburb, following the shadows of drifting oil slicks over the silt. 
Wreckage is strewn along the sea floor and floating bodies beckon him towards the roots of the Black Island. It is evening by the time he walks out of the surf, trailing flags of seaweed, water draining from inside his battered armour. He shakes his head to clear his vision and stares about him at a beach of black sand beneath dark cliffs. It takes him most of another hour to find the life raft, hidden in a tumble of house-sized builders. He unsheathes his metal claws and tears the bottom out of it, cutting off her escape. Hester is his again now. When she is dead, he will carry her gently through the drowned sunlight and the forests of kelp, back through the marshes and the long leagues of the hunting ground to Croom. He will take her into London in his arms like a father carrying his sleeping child. He drops on all fours in the sand and starts sniffing for her scent. Towards sundown, they finally reached the top of the slope and found themselves looking down into the centre of the Black Island. Tom hadn't realised until now that it was an extinct volcano, but from here it was obvious. The steep, black crags ringed an almost circular bowl of land, green and patched with fields. Almost directly below the place where the pirates crouched, a small static settlement stood beside a blue lake. There were airship hangars and mooring masts beside the stone buildings, and on the flat ground behind them, dwarfing the whole place, Airhaven perched on a hundred skinny landing legs, looking as helpless as a grounded bird. The air caravanserai, chuckled Peavy. He pulled out his telescope and put it to his eye. Look at them work. They're pumping their gas bags back up, desperate to get back into the sky. He swung the glass quickly across the surrounding hillsides. No sign of any of our boys. Ah, oh, if we only had a cannon left. But we'll manage, eh, lads? A uh, bunch of airy fairies is no match for us. Come on, let's get closer. There was a strange edge to the mayor's voice. He's frightened, Tom realised, but he can't admit it, in case Mungo and Mags and Ames lose faith in him. He had never thought he would feel sorry for the pirate mayor, but he did. Peavy had been kind to him in his way, and it hurt to see him reduced to this, scrambling across the wet ground, with his people muttering and cursing him behind his back. They still followed him, though, down between the screes into the crater of the old fire mountain. Once they saw riders silhouetted on a distant crag, a patrol of islanders hunting for survivors from the sunken pirate town. Once an airship flew low overhead and Peavy hissed to everybody to lie flat and stay still, wrapping his monkey under his robes to muffle its shrill complaints. The airship circled, but by that time the sun had gone down and the pilot did not see the figures who cowered in the twilight below him like mice hiding from an owl. He flew back down to land at the caravanserai as a fat moon heaved itself over the eastern crags. Tom gave a sharp sob of relief and scrambled up. Around him, the others were also starting to move, grunting, dislodging small stones which went clattering away down the hillside. He could see people hurrying about with lanterns and torches in the streets of the air caravanserai, and lamplit windows that made him think how wonderful it would be to be warm and safe indoors. Airhaven was bright with electric lights, and the wind brought the distant sounds of shouted orders, music, cheering. For Pete's sake, hissed Mungo, we're too late, it's leaving. Never, scoffed Peavy. But they could all see that Airhaven's gas bags were almost full. 
A few minutes later, the growl of the engines came rumbling up the slope, rising and falling as the wind gusted. The flying town was straining upwards, its crab-like legs folding back into place underneath it. No! shouted Peavy. Then he was running downhill, scrambling and tumbling, down clattering spills of scree towards the flat, boggy land in the crater floor. And as he ran, they heard him screaming, Come back! You're my catch! I sank my town for you! Mungo and Mags and Ames set off after him, with Hester and Tom behind. At the foot of the slope, the ground grew soft and squashy underfoot, and pools of water reflected the moon and the lights of the rising town. Come back, they could hear Peavy shouting somewhere ahead of them. Come back, and then, ah, oh, help. They screamed towards the sound of his voice and the harsh screams of the monkey and all came to a halt together at the edge of a deep patch of bog. Peavy was already up to his waist in it. The monkey perched on top of his head like a sailor on a foundering ship, grinning with fear. Give me a hand, boys. The mare pleaded. Help me! We can still get it! It's only testing its lifting engines! It'll come down again! The pirates watched him, silently. They knew they had no chance of taking the flying town, and that his shouts had probably warned the islanders of their presence. We've got to help him, whispered Tom, starting forward, but Hester held him back. Too late, she said. Peavy was sinking deeper, the weight of his chain of office pulling him down. He sputtered as the black mud swilled into his mouth. Come on, lads! Mags! Mungo! I'm your mare! I've done all this for you! He searched for Tom with wild, terrified eyes. Tell him, Tommy boy, he whimpered. Tell him I wanted to make Tambridge wheels great. I wanted to be respectable. Tell him! Mungo's first shot blew the monkey off the top of Peavy's head in a cloud of singed fur. The second and third went through his chest. He bowed his head, and the mud gulped him down with soft farting noises. The pirates turned to look at Tom. We probably wouldn't be here if it weren't for you, muttered Mungo. If you hadn't have gone filling the chief's head up with all them ideas about manners and cities and stuff, agreed Mags. Different forks for every course, and no talking with your mouth full, sneered Ames. Tom started to back away. To his surprise, Hester stepped quickly between him and the pirates. It's not Tom's fault, she said. And you're no use to us neither, Mungo growled. Neither of you is. We're pirates. We don't need no lessons in etiquette. And we don't need no lame scar-faced girl to hold us up. He raised his gun and Mags followed suit. Even Mr Ames pulled out a little revolver. And a voice out of the darkness said, They're mine. Chapter 21 In the Engineerium London was climbing towards a high plateau where the town-torn earth was dusted with thin layers of snow. Far behind it, but not nearly far enough, rolled Panzerstadt Bayreuth, no longer just a threatening blur on the horizon, but a huge dark mass of tracks and tears, the gold filigree work of its ornate top deck clearly visible above the smoke of factories and engines. Londoners crowded onto the aft observation platforms and watched in silence as the gap between the two cities slowly narrowed. That afternoon the Lord Mayor announced that there was no need for panic 
and that the Guild of Engineers would bring the city safely through this crisis. But there had already been riots and looting on the lower tiers, and squads of beefeaters had been sent down to keep order in the gut. Old Croom doesn't know what he's talking about, muttered one of the men on duty at the Quirk Circus elevator station that evening. I never thought I'd hear myself say it, but he's a fool. Bringing poor old London way out east like this, day after day of travelling, week after week, just to get scoffed by some big old conurbation. I wish Valentine was here, he'd know what to do. Quiet, Bert, hissed his companion. Here comes some more of them. Both men bowed politely as two engineers strode up to the turnstiles. A young man and a girl, dressed identically in green plastic goggles and white rubber hoods and coats. The girl flashed a gold pass. When she and her companion had gone up into the waiting elevator, Bert turned to his friend and whispered, Must be important, this do at the engineerium. They've been swarming up out of their nests in the deep gut like a load of old white maggots. Imagine having a guild meeting at a time like this. Inside the elevator, Catherine sat down next to Beavis Pod, already feeling hot and self-conscious inside the coat that he had lent her. She glanced at him and then checked her reflection in the window, making sure that the red wheels they had drawn so carefully on each other's foreheads had not got smudged. She thought they both looked ridiculous in these hoods and goggles, but Beavis had assured her that a lot of engineers wore them these days, and the other occupant of the elevator, a fat navigator, didn't so much as look at them while the car lurched towards top tier. Catherine had spent the whole day restlessly waiting for Beavis to arrive with her disguise. To while away the time, she had looked up the name Hester Shaw in the indices of all her father's books, but couldn't find it. A complete catalogue of the London Museum contained one brief reference to a Pandora Shaw, but it just said she was an out-country scavenger who had supplied a few minor fossils and pieces of old tech to the Historians Guild, and gave the date of her death seven years ago. After that, she tried looking up Medusa, only to learn that it was some sort of monster in an old story. She didn't think Magnus Croom and his engineers believed in monsters. Nobody gave a second glance as she and Beavis strode across top tier towards the main entrance of the engineerium. Scores of engineers were already hurrying up the steps. Catherine joined them, clutching her gold pass and keeping close to the apprentice, terrified that she might lose him in this crowd of identical white coats. This will never work, she kept thinking, but the guildsman on duty at the door wasn't bothering to look at passes. She took a last look at the fading sunset behind the dome of St Paul's, then stepped inside. It was bigger than she expected and brighter, lit by hundreds of argon globes that hung in the great open shaft at the centre of the building like planets hanging in space. She looked around for the staircase, but Beavis tugged at her arm and said, We go up by monorail, look. The engineers were clambering into little monorail cars. Catherine and Beavis joined the queue, listening to their muttered conversations and the squeaky rustle of their coats rubbing together. Beavis's eyes were wide and frightened behind his goggles. Catherine had hoped that they would be able to get a monorail car to themselves so that they could talk, but more engineers were arriving all the time, and she ended up sitting on the far side of a packed car from him, wedged tightly in with a group from the Maglev Research Division. "'Where are you from, Guildsperson?' asked the man sitting beside her. "'Um...' Catherine looked frantically at Beavis, 
but he was too far away to whisper an answer. She blurted out the first thing that came to mind. K-Division? Old Twixie, eh? said the man. I hear she's having amazing results with her new models. Oh, yes, very, she replied. Then the car moved off with a lurch and her neighbour turned to the window, fascinated by the passing view. Catherine had expected the monorail to feel like an elevator, but the speed and the spiralling movement made it quite different and for a moment she had to concentrate hard on not being sick. The other engineers seemed not to notice. What do you think the Lord Mayor's speech will be about? One of them asked. It must be Medusa, said another. I heard they're preparing for a test. Let's hope it works, said a woman sitting just in front of Catherine. It was Valentine who found the machine, after all, and he's only a historian, you know, you can't trust them. Oh, Valentine is the Lord Mayor's man, said another. Don't let that historian's guild mark fool you. He's as loyal as a dog so long as we give him plenty of money, and he gets to pretend that foreign daughter of his is a High London lady. Round and round they went, and up past offices and workshops full of busy engineers, like an enormous hive of insects. The car stopped on level five, and Catherine climbed out, still flushed with anger at what the others had said. She linked up with Beavis again, and they all trotted together through chilly white corridors and through hanging curtains of transparent plastic. She could hear the babble of voices ahead, and after a few twists and turns, they emerged into an immense auditorium. Beavis led the way to a seat near one of the exits. She looked about her to see if she could spot Supervisor Nimmo, but it was impossible to make him out. The auditorium was a sea of white coats and bold or hooded heads, and more were pouring through the entrances all the time. Look, hissed Beavis, nudging her. That's Dr Twix, the one I told you about. He pointed to a squat little barrel-shaped woman who was taking a seat in the front row, chattering animatedly with her neighbours. All the top guild persons are here. Twix, Chubb, Garstang, and there's Dr Vanbrace, the head of security. Catherine began to feel frightened. If she had been unmasked at the door, she might have been able to pass it off as a silly prank. But now she was deep in the engineer's inner sanctum, and she could tell that something important was about to happen. She reminded herself that even if they discovered her, the engineers would never dare harm Thaddeus Valentine's daughter. She tried not to think about what they might do to Beavis. At last the doors were closed and the lights dimmed. An expectant hush filled the auditorium, broken only by the slithery whisper of 500 engineers rising to their feet. Catherine and Beavis jumped up with them, peering at the stage over the shoulders of the people in front. Magnus Croom was standing at a metal lectern, his cold eyes sweeping the audience. For a moment he seemed to stare straight at Catherine, and she had to remind herself that he couldn't possibly recognise her, not with her hood and her goggles and the tall collar of her coat turned up. "'You may be seated,' said Croom, and waited until they had settled themselves before going on. "'This is a glorious day for our guild, my friends.' A ripple of excitement ran through the auditorium, and through Catherine too. Croom motioned for quiet. Up in the ceiling of the auditorium, a slide projector whirred into life and a picture appeared on a screen behind his head. It was a diagram of an enormous, complicated machine. Medusa, announced Croom, and there was a sort of echo as all the engineers sighed. Medusa, 
as some of you already know, he went on, Medusa is an experimental energy weapon from the 60 Minutes War. We have known about it for some time. In fact, ever since Valentine found these documents on his trip to America 20 years ago. The projector screen was flickering with faded diagrams and spidery writing. Father never told me that, Catherine thought. Of course, these fragmentary plans were not enough to let us reconstruct Medusa, Croom was saying. But seven years ago, thanks again to Valentine, we acquired a remarkable piece of old tech taken from a long-lost military site in the American desert. It is perhaps the best preserved ancient computer core ever discovered, and it is more than that. It is the brain of Medusa, the artificial intelligence that once powered this remarkable machine. Thanks to the hard work of Dr. Splay and his comrades in B Division, we have at last been able to restore it to working order. Guild persons, the days when London had to run and hide from other hungry cities are at an end. With Medusa at our command, we will be able to reduce any one of them to ashes in the blink of an eye. The engineers applauded wildly and Beavis Pod nudged at Catherine to join in, but her hands seemed to have become frozen to the metal armrests of her seat. She felt giddy with shock. She remembered everything she had heard about the 60-minute war and how the ancients' terrible thunder weapons had blasted their static cities and poisoned the earth and sky. Father would never have helped the engineers to recreate such a terrible thing. Nor will we have to go chasing after scraps like Salthook, Croom continued. In another week, London will be within range of Batmunk Gomper, the shield wall. For a thousand years, the Anti-Traction League has cowered behind it, holding out against the tide of history. Medusa will destroy it at a single stroke. The lands beyond it, with all their huge static cities, their crops and forests, their untapped mineral wealth, will become London's new hunting ground. You could hardly hear him now. The cheers of the engineers rolled like breakers against the wall behind him and it slid slowly open, revealing a long window that looked out towards St Paul's Cathedral and the turrets of the Guild Hall. But first, he shouted, we have more pressing business to attend to. Although I had hoped we might keep Medusa hidden until we reached the shield wall, it has become necessary to give a demonstration of its power. Even as I speak, Dr. Splay's team is preparing a test firing of the new weapon. Even if Catherine had wanted to hear more, it would soon have become impossible, for Croom's audience were all talking excitedly among themselves. A few engineers, presumably those connected with the Medusa project, were hurrying to the exits. Standing up, Catherine started pushing her way to the door. A moment later, she was out in the antiseptic corridor, wondering what to do next. Kate? Beavis Pod appeared behind her. Where are you going? People noticed you leave. I saw some guild security people watching us. We've got to get out of here, whispered Catherine. Where's the way out? I don't know, admitted the boy. I've never been to this level before. I suppose we'll have to find our way back to the monorail. 
He shook Catherine away as she tried to take his hand. No, somebody will see. Engineers aren't supposed to touch each other. They hurried along the tubular corridors, and Catherine said, Croom was lying. My father didn't go to America seven years ago. He just went on a little trip to the islands of the Western Ocean. And he never told me he'd found anything important. He'd have told me if he'd really found Medusa. He wouldn't want anything to do with old world weapons anyway. But why would the Lord Mayor lie? asked Beavis, who was secretly rather pleased that his guild had stumbled upon the keys to yet another ancient secret. Anyway, he didn't say your dad went to America for this thing. He just said he acquired it. Maybe he bought it from a scavenger or something. I wonder what Croom meant about a demonstration. He stopped. They had come to the end of the corridor and there were no monorails in sight. Three doorways faced them. Two were locked. The third led only onto a narrow balcony that jutted out from the engineerium's flank, high above Paternoster Square. What now? asked Catherine, hearing her own voice high and thin with fright, and Beavis just as nervously replied, I don't know. She stepped out onto the balcony to catch her breath. The moon was up, but veiled by thin cloud, and a cool drizzle was falling. She pulled off her goggles and let the rain spill down her face, glad to be free of the heat and the chemical stench. She thought about father. Had he really found Medusa? Beavis was right. Croom had no reason to lie. Poor father. He would be in the air now, somewhere above the snow peaks of Shangguo. If only she had some way to warn him what they were planning to do with his discovery. A low mechanical rumble came drifting across the moonlit square. She looked down at the wet deck plates, but could not see what was making the noise. Then something made her glance up at St Paul's. She gasped. Beavis, look! Like a huge bud blooming, slowly, the dome of the ancient cathedral was splitting open. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 